Our scripture this morning is taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, uh, verses 3 through 10, and then verse 13. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. John, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad you could be with us. It's a beautiful, warm day, and it's, so, it's very nice to be in here, for, at least for me. I grew up in Fresno, where like 105, 110, and so I'm not a fan of heat, and this is a great place to be for, for me. Some of you love it out there. I get it. Um, I have been kind of conditioned now, after years in Seattle, to be a weather wimp like the rest of you, like... <laughs> like Whining when it's 85. It's amazing to me that I would whine when it's 85 after uh, where I grew up. But anyway, it's a beautiful day. Uh, please join me in prayer. We're finishing today uh, our book study, The Song of Solomon. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much that we can gather here. Thank you for your presence with us, for uh, your spirit that moves among us, that teaches us, that opens our hearts individually and collectively. And our prayer, Father, is that the light that is your life would shine through us collectively and individually. Uh, in order that our city might, in increasing measure, uh, see and respond to the invitation to become people of hope, but pr particularly this morning, uh, people uh, who are able to live in love. Would you guide us there ourselves in order that we might represent that, Father, for you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm convinced in our culture that the number one idol is so ubiquitous that we don't even recognize it as an idol. We all accept it almost axiomatically, and I, the idol that I'm speaking of is individualism. I think we live in a culture that is uh, profoundly shaped by our insistence on clinging to individual rights. I've seen the evolution of individualism in my lifetime, growing up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, at the, at the checkout stand at the grocery store. Uh, back in the 60s, uh, the magazine was uh, life. In the 70s, the magazine was people. In the 80s, the magazine was us. In the 90s, the magazine was self. And you can just see, moving from life to people to us to self, I'm waiting for a new edition of a new magazine called Me. That, that'll be like <laughs> the logical conclusion to this. Me! It's all about me. And what we have here is a clinging to rights, a clinging to autonomy, and though we long for community, we are a desperately lonely culture. And I've discovered in my study for this sermon today that the number one reason that young people, and there are many of you in the room, the number one reason given for resisting marriage, uh, fear of losing my autonomy. 
It's the number, it's the number one thing people fear. I, I want to keep my autonomy. And this is why uh, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties often have this kind of funeral-esque uh, attitude about them, right? And some of you in the room know this. Some of you have posted such parties. Some of you have gone to such parties. Some, and, and it's like, well, we're so sorry. You know, the, your life is over now because you're getting married, right? And it's this, it's this fear of losing autonomy. I would suggest as well that we resist marriage for that reason. We resist as well uh, actual relationship with Jesus, choosing often religion instead. It's easy. to Anyone can come here. You're all invited. Come, read, sit, sing, drop a couple bucks in the plate. <clears throat> That's very different than falling in love with Christ because falling in love both horizontally in human relationships and vertically in our relationship with, with Jesus, falling in love requires of us a relinquishing of our rights and a laying down of our life. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. And so then the question would be, well, what would ever uh, compel me to give up my rights, to give up my autonomy? Uh, and, and the answer is a, a vision of the healing power of love. Uh, so the, we're going to look at that this morning, vision, vision of the healing power of love. As we bring this series to a close, what we discover in our text this morning are the marks of mature love that come about uh, when someone is able, A, to receive revelation from another regarding their identity as beautiful. I have to, it begins there. I have to see myself as beautiful because another has spoken into my life that I'm beautiful. I have to receive that. And then, uh, having received that, I need to reciprocate that. And of course, the scriptures speak to this. We love, 1 John says, we love because he, Christ, what? First loved us. So the reason I'm able to love is because I've received love first from Christ. So now we, we look at this in uh, chapter 8, and we see kind of two things happening here. A, or one, she receives and reciprocates his love. And the second thing that we see happening is mature love is revealed. So f- first she receives and reciprocates his love. Second, mature love revealed. That's what we'll look at this morning. So if you, if you follow Song of Solomon, like middle of the Bible, just before Isaiah, and now the last chapter. Next week we begin a whole different thing. Uh, but in chapter 8, here's, here's how it goes. We've been looking at these two lovers for a long time now. And she speaks to him here, and she says, Oh, I wish that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outdoors, I'd kiss you. No one would despise me either. So she's previously received his words of affirmation. We've spoken extensively of our need to receive words of affirmation from God. Everything begins with what God says of me. And if God says, You're forgiven. Uh, you're called, you're beautiful, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, you're made right, uh, you're empowered, I see you as complete. That's where we start. The starting point is saying yes to God's assessment of us. And, and she here has said yes to his assessment of her. And now she, what she says then is uh, kind, of, kind of weird on the surface. Oh, I wish you were like a brother to me, because then if I found you outdoors, I'd kiss you and no one would despise me. It sounds incestuous. But once you understand the culture, it's not incestuous, incestuous at all. Incestuous at all. Uh, here's what's going on. What she's saying here is idiomatic, and, and what she means is, I wish that you were accepted in the family as a brother would be accepted, right? That's all she's, she's saying. I wish that you were uh, received by my family. But, I, but you aren't, and you can't be, because of the nature of our love, as we'll see. Because if he were, then their love would be affirmed by others, but their love, their love is not affirmed by others for reasons that will become apparent. This has tremendous application for us as Christ followers. Now, we're called the bride of Christ, as you know, as many of you know. And so Christ then says, look, I want to love you the way a love relationship is, 
But understand that this in Song of Songs is analogous to our love relationship with Christ so that when we love Christ and we fall into this deep and passionate love relationship with Christ, we're often led then by virtue of that relationship into spaces that other people don't understand, other people won't receive. In other words, love of Jesus will place you outside the norms of culture, not just once, but, but many times. Following Christ leads us to places that most people won't go. In John 15, Jesus said, look, the world hated me, so don't be surprised the world will hate you. And John 16, uh, Jesus says, hey, religious people hated me, so don't be surprised if religious people hate you. So both the world and religious people, because here's the deal, when religion becomes more about duty than love, then the, those who really love are hated by the religious ones. Because, because religious ones don't understand love. And when religion becomes about baptizing power structures with God's favor, rather than finding meaning outside the power structures, then they also miss God's love. So those outside the power structures get persecuted because those inside the power structures are threatened by those who don't need the power structure. This is basically what it's saying. And so it starts at this kind of very ubiquitous level where people are, uh, or mundane level, where people go, I just don't understand you church people. It's sunny outside. You could be sailing. You could be doing anything. And what are you doing? You're sitting here listening to some guy prattle on, and then you're going to put money in a plate for that? Like, what? that makes no sense to anyone driving by. Really, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, I worked in a steel factory, and my boss said to me, hey, what are you doing on the weekend? A couple of times. And if it was tennis, I'd say, or if it was summer, I'd say, well, you know, Saturdays are tennis. Uh, uh, and if it's winter, uh, Saturdays are bowling. But either way, uh, Sundays are like church. He says, what, what does that mean? Well, you go, you know, you sing, and then you hear a guy, and there's an offering, and he goes, so you just, you just sit and listen, and you pay money to do that? It's, you blow up half your weekend, and he just walks, he says, I will never understand you. That's what he looked at me, I will never understand you. And he, because he would spend the weekend just doing whatever he wanted and betting as many women as he could and, you know, spending his money and, like, his life was chaos, but he looked at this and he was like, no, no way, ever. So there's that mundane level, but it really moves beyond that, Right? I mean, uh, if you, if you th consider the story of Elizabeth Elliot, she was a, a missionary with the Aki Indians with her husband. Her husband then was killed. She left. She was pregnant. And then once she gave birth uh, with a six-month child, she said, God has called me to go back and minister among the very people who killed my husband. And she received persecution, not from the world, but from the church, who said to her, you're crazy. They killed your husband. They're going to kill you too. Why are you doing that? Look, safety first. And she said, I have no answer. Other than this, God's called me. So she went. And this was long ago, 1958. 1968, she shows up at Wheaton College in the Midwest with one of these uh, men from the Aga tribe standing next to her. He stands up and he introduces her. He says, I'm the man who killed her husband. <laughs> and I'm now a Christ follower because she was faithful to follow the call of God. In other words, she, you know, I'll throw it all away. Why? Love does that. And when that happens, people won't understand, right? When Henry Nowen leaves his post uh, as a professor to care for a, develop a developmentally disabled man in a group home, people didn't understand. What a waste of a giant intellect. This is what he said. Love does this. This is what love does. Love follows wherever God leads. We go, why? Because of love. And people don't understand. 
So if uh, your goal is to hold your reputation intact, it's going to be very hard to follow Jesus. I'll just say that. And many of us make compromises along the way because we want to hold our reputation intact. Love can't, love can't do that. So, so she wishes that uh, her relationship with him were out in the open like a brother, but she knows that when it is out in the open, and it will be out in the open, they'll receive persecution. <laughs> so will we. Jesus said it. But then, the other thing you see here under this rubric of receiving his love is she gives to him, and this is in verse 2, she said, uh, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I'd give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranates. Let his left hand be under uh, my head. Let his right hand embrace me. In other words, this is her yes to his invitation to love, right? She gives to him. In other words, she's received from him. And you go back and look at the text. And what has he said? He said, look, you're beautiful in every way. And he's heaped this praise. Remember, we've said this over and over again. He sees and he affirms. Sees and affirms. Christ sees you. Christ affirms you. You're beloved. You're adopted. You're forgiven. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is loving you actively through affirmation, and then he gives. He gives you spiritual gifts. He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you a calling. He gives you a destiny. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a love relationship. He gives you one who will never leave you. He gives and gives and gives. So here's what Jesus then says to you, Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. Freely you have received what? Does anyone know the rest? Freely give. In other words, I didn't give to you so that you could then get fat on my spiritual blessings. I didn't give to you so that you could be a pool uh, filled up and then stagnating with blessings. No, no. I gave to you so that you could be a conduit through which blessings pour. I've poured my life into you in order that your life might be poured out. And so when we're invited into a love relationship with Jesus, that relationship is made visible by our generosity, by our giving and giving and giving. Why? Because we've received, we give. So couples whose marriage work for the long haul develop habits of both receiving and giving love. We receive love from the other, and we give. And so I want to challenge you this morning to embrace the value of generosity as foundational in your love relationship with Jesus because generosity is the response of love. God has given to you, now you're calling by way of response. If it's a love relationship, your calling is to respond and generously give. In the name of Jesus, serve others. And this requires a giving of time, and it requires a giving of money right? And so when you invest time uh, to take pleasure in being with Jesus, the way any good lover would invest time in the relationship, this time enables you to see things, to hear things, to express gratitude, and armed with this little investment of time, you kind of get this new lens through which to look at the world, and when that happens, all of life becomes a sermon. You're continually receiving what God has to say to you in traffic, in sunrises, on the waterfront, in food, in coffee, in relationship, with friends, with, lo- with those we love, with, en- with, every- with everyone. God's speaking. We're receiving. Why? Because we have this lens, and what, what did we need to get this lens? Time. We needed time with God. We just needed time. And so uh, coffee with God, if we can say that, that's how I call it in the morning. I have this coffee with God. At its best, I, I gain this lens so that I have this sense now that God is with me all the time, you see. And then what, what comes out of that is God's call to invest. So... I find this super helpful in my role. 
those of you who know me know that I'm not, I'm not particularly ambitious. In fact, one psych test said I was the most unambitious client he'd ever had before. <laughs> uh, and so I, 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 I'm not like motivated by success. I'm lazy, in other words. And, 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 and yet called in a way to, to serve, do you see? And so how, how, how is that gap closed in my life? It's not closed perfectly by any means. Those of you who know me know that. But the way that the gap is closed is by recognizing every day through this, this for my, in my life, the spiritual discipline of gratitude, recognize every day, look at what God has given me. Look at what God has given me. Whether it's health or forgiveness or a, a gift of teaching or a gift of leadership, or the mercy of God, or my family, or my children, or the beauty of creation, or the chance to live in my favorite city in all the world, whatever it is, I, like blessing, blessing, blessing. And then I realize, oh, God has given me this so that I can serve. And so then it's easy, much easier for me to say yes to service on the basis of gratitude rather than ambition or obligation. But, but I'm called then to serve, and you're called to serve. And, and invest generously your time in the story of hope that God is writing. And, you, and, and so the investment, whether, you, whether you're volunteering at the food bank or you're volunteering in the shelter here or you're volunteering in the medical clinic or you're involved in the ministry to refugees like those are who rode their bicycles to Spokane this week and raised $300,000 for local resettlement ministries or, or, or the ministry to kids, who, uh, uh, kids Summer Adventure uh, coming up in a couple of weeks, or ministry to, to broken lives, to spiritual journey, how, or uh, Stephen ministers, however you invest your time, your investment of time and your investment of money equals your investment of heart. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says it this way, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So Jesus is saying, look, if you want your heart oriented to, to me, then invest in me through a life of generosity. Invest through generosity. I have a friend who has some wealth, and he also owns some stock in the company Apple. You, who knows this? You guys know this company, Apple, right? <laughs> Therefore, uh, when I was traveling with him once, he, I saw him light up every time he saw an iPhone or an iPad or a, a little Macintosh, whatever, MacBook Air or something. And you're on a train or on a plane. He'd be like, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one, there's another one. And I'm like, who does this? Who notices these things? And he said, well, I have, you know, X stock, giant number. And so every time I see one, it's like, ka-ching, you know, that's money in my pocket. And so it's just like, yeah, I'm always on the lookout for that. In other words, watch this, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Does this make sense? Like when you invest in the work of God through a local church, then your heart is there. If you're not invested, your heart isn't there. Then you become a consumer. And a consumer is not love. It's religious, but it's not love. And you're not invited uh, to religion. That's ultimately boring and not life-giving. You're invited to love, and love requires investment. Investment of time, investment of money. She's saying, look, because of all you've given me, I want to give back to you. Freely you have received, says Jesus, Matthew 10, 8, Freely give. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. You want to fall in love with Jesus? Begin to live generously. So, so that's the deal here as we kind of see she receives and reciprocates love. But now we spend the rest of the time here looking at mature love. And mature love, there's three characteristics of mature love seen as this book comes to a close. They are commitment, endurance, and boundaries. Those three things constitute pure love. Let's look at commitment by looking at verse six. She says to him, 
Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. I'm just going to stop right there because this is the phrase we're going to focus on. Love is as strong as death. What does that mean? Here's the thing that you must see. Remember this? Uh, many of you who grew up in the church know this Bible verse, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he what? He, that he gave his only son. And he, gave, he gave his only son to do what? To die, right? So God so loved the world that he brought it. There was a death that came about because the love of God will transcend the death. Love is stronger than death. Christ needed to die for love to be revealed. Christ needed to die for love to be revealed. Now, we come on and we look at Jesus. Jesus said in the garden, sweating drops of blood, as he wrestled with the notion that he needed to die, this is what he said in prayer to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And in so doing, he willingly lays down his life and he will rise from the dead. Why? Because love is stronger than, than death. So he dies to his plans. The father uh, dies to his love for his son by putting his son to death. The son dies by obeying the father. And then Jesus sends us out. John chapter 12, verse 24, he says this. Look, if you seek to save your life, you will what? Lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. When Christ calls a man, he, he calls that man to go and die with him. Then the apostle Paul picks this up in Philippians chapter 3 when he says this. This is what I want. I want to know Christ. And what do I mean? I want to be united with Christ in his death so that I might be united with him in the glory of his resurrection. Jesus is saying something hugely important here. The life for which you are created, watch this, is life out from the dead. You're, you're like to flourish as this flower, bringing the aroma of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the life of Christ, the hope of Christ, but you can only know life out from the dead if first you what? Die. <laughs> so everyone in the room then has a cross that is ours. When Christ calls a man, Christ bids him come and die, I'm called to die then to my autonomy. In the same way that any bride, any groom is called to die to their autonomy when they get married, that's why bachelor parties look like funerals. Because people know, oh yeah, this is the end of the world as I know it, right? It's the end of freedom. So of course, two things are true about marriage here when we think about it that apply to our relationship with God when it comes to this death notion. First, why do we lay down our lives? Well, obviously, we lay down our lives because of love. That's it. I mean, if you look at the movie this summer, or this spring, Beauty and the Beast, that's this story. Even if you look at Wonder Woman, that's this story, though I won't tell you why, because that'll spoil it for some of you in the room. But it's true. Uh, every blockbuster love story that resonates so well with us has, has a notion in it, sacrifice, every time, every single time, there's this notion of sacrifice. Why? Well, when we were first married, uh, uh, I'm, 20, I'm 23, my wife is 21, we're living in Fresno, my wife is working in a senior citizen's home. She came home after a few weeks, and one day she said, the thing that brings me the most joy in my job, she said, I, there's this guy, and he drives in, and he spends the whole, he's there for breakfast. He spends the whole day with his wife who has dementia. She doesn't know who he is, but she's there. And then after supper, he leaves. And my wife has tears in her eyes. And she says, they've been married 50 years. 
And look at him. Service. Sacrifice. It was stunning to us, 21 and 23, right? It was the beginning of this dawning realization that when you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because you can't know because you're young. But love sacrifices, right? And there's something beautiful in that sacrifice, but it's, here's, the, here's the thing. Love is stronger than death. In his driving in and faithfully loving her, he finds his truest self. That's the deal. We lay down our lives because of love, and in laying down our lives, we find a better life, a life out from death because love is stronger than death. Second, we lay down our lives precisely because we believe something new is being mysteriously born, right? In Genesis chapter 2, what does God say? Hey, you leave, you leave, leave your families, come together, and then mysteriously, what's the promise? The two will become one flesh, right? And, you know, there's this huge debate uh, well, it's not a huge debate, but maybe you remember, like, lighting the unity candle. Do you remember this in a marriage ceremony? And my wife and I had this big discussion before we got married. Do we blow out the other candles, or do we, we let them remain lit? Because if you blow them out, it's a way of saying, I, what am I saying? I no longer exist, right? And we didn't want to no longer exist. <laughs> but we did want this new thing, and so, in reality, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that when Jesus says, reiterating Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh, what Jesus is saying is, look, the new unit means, the, it, does mean it doesn't mean you cease to exist, but who you were will cease to exist. You will become different people because you got married. You will. And so, 38 years later, I can, I can kind of say that, Right? Uh, you move from autonomy to dependency, from financial freedom to joint decisions, from uh, 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 sexual simplicity, whether that's frustration with your commitment to chastity uh, or the emptiness of recreational sex, whatever it is, to sexual complexity, from me to we, you're, you're moving. You're just moving. You're moving into a whole new thing, and by moving into this, you're le- you have to leave something behind. You can't bring it all with you, uh, and this is this new thing that, that will be born. And so uh, you know then that you're moving into, you're moving toward marriage in a dating setting. You know that you're moving toward marriage if in this dating setting there's a higher and higher level of accountability. Because listen, in a marriage relationship, this, now you're one, you're not two. So n- nobody's married in the room. I don't think any of you in the mar- married in the room come home one day driving a brand new $30,000 car and say, hey, look what I just did. Does anyone do that? Don't raise your hand if you do that. (laughs) And if you do that, you're here alone. (laughs) Right? Why? Because it's not your money anymore. It's, it's It's our thing. It's our resources. It's our life. Hence, it's what? Our decision. Yeah, what a hassle. Hello, you got married, right? That's a hassle. But, it's, but why would you do that? Because you gave up autonomy to create a new thing. And so when there's, a, I mean, dating couples ask, like, how do you know that, that, that we're moving toward commitment? I said, uh, do you feel like he needs to give account for where he is? Yeah. I said, then you're getting committed. Like, if Tessa says, what did you do last night? I may or may not say anything, right? But if I'm in Austria and my wife calls me, 
and says, what'd you do last night? And I say, it's none of your business. <laughs> I'll just give you a little hint, guys. Wrong answer. <laughs> There's a name for people like that. Previously married. <laughs> like, like, why? Because my life is not my own anymore. So, when Jesus says to you, live like I did, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I lived a life because of my virtue of intimacy with God the Father. I was, to- I was totally accountable to the Father. My time, not my own. My judgment, not my own. My vocational choices, not my own. My sexuality, not my own. My money, not my own. My authority, not my own. My judgment, not my own. Why? Because, hello, my life is not my own. It's inextricably linked with the will of the Father. That was Jesus. And then Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And so look to marriage as an example because marriage is an example. My time is not my own. My money is not my own. My sexuality is not my own. I'm in a unit, right? And, and if you're single here this morning or married, you're in a unit. And the unit you're in is your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're your groom, for whom you are the bride. And so, so you're in a unit, and that means your time is not my own. Your body is not your own. Your sexuality, your vocational choices, your work, your judgment, your vote, your authority, your strength, not yours. You're in, you're in a union now. Oh, that sounds mystical. Yes, uh, this is true, though. That's the problem. It's a union. And so to the extent that we begin to live with empty hands because we realize now that we're united with Christ, we're on the cusp of something better because because this resurrection life can only come out of you saying, not my own. And many of us are stuck because we're hanging on to certain things, you see. Then we move to endurance, kind of the next principle here. It's in verse 7. Love is stronger than death. Also, verse 7, many waters... Cannot quench love. This is really interesting. There's a Chinese saying, water is fluid, soft, and yielding, but water uh, will wear away rocks. And so if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know that who wins, water or rock? Water wins. And the, canyon, the, the, the water just kind of wears down the rock. And so the, this is the word picture that's in play here, right? Um, when we get married, we bring with us, and when we follow Christ, we bring with us kind of this, this sense of self, much of which will need to actually die. I bring a, bring a false ego into the marriage, and it's going to need to die. And how does it die? I'm, I'm going to tell you, it dies not in a massive moment when you give your wedding vows. No, 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 no. This, the, this ego... Uh, dies, and this is, I use this in a positive light now, this saying that's never used in a positive light. How does your ego die? Here's how, death by a thousand cuts. Do you know what I mean by that? That's how your ego dies. I mean, I remember getting married, and, you know, we had this beautiful ceremony, and it's the 70s, and Donna has flowers in her hair, and all this great stuff, right? And then, uh, anyway, I'd written her some songs, and then we go on our honeymoon, it's all good. But then, it was just a couple of weeks into the marriage, um, I grew up in a family where there was criticism all the time. Like, the, always the response to everything was, how can it be better? And, and I kind of adapted to that a little bit, or I checked out, I don't know what happened. But anyway, that became my paradigm as well. So she serves, uh, so she brings some mashed potatoes to the meal, 
And I go, and I'd never eaten her mashed potatoes, and I go, these are boring. That's what I said, these are boring. She goes, what do you mean? I guess, well, you know, there's no garlic, there's no pepper, there's no spices really, just a little salt. Is that really how you do, is that, did you just forget? No, no, this is, this is how I do them. Really? You know? And then, you know, after the meal, I mean, she's in tears. What? It's just potatoes. And, by the way, it's just criticism. This is how I live. This is what I do. The cup's always half empty, really, and leaking, by the way. So, come on. They'll do better. It's always tomorrow. Look, and so then there's kind of this wake-up moment. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? Cut number one. And there's, a thou- there's not a thousand, there's 10,000, right? For me, for her. And the process, you know, it's, you know what's dying? My ego, my pathologies, my selfishness, my clinging to autonomy. It's, a, it's dying. And, and in my notes, this is what I, I have here in capital letters. The false ego construct will be worn down by living into your calling as a spouse. And then I put down illustration and, and, I, and I left it blank, as I often do in pre- preparation. And I go, well, something will come to me later in the week. And, and I kept looking all week, nothing, 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 nothing. Because I was looking for the big macro event. When was that moment when the ego died? Was it at a marriage conference? Was it on vacation? Was it on our 20th anniversary when we were in Italy? Was it with this amazing sex? Was it with this amazing argument? No, I'm coming up empty. Like, when was the magic moment? There was no magic moment. There were 10,000 tiny moments. Of, of saying no to my ego so that this new thing could flourish that is us, not me, not her. And I, I would say that healthy relationship with Jesus or horizontally is not because of big dramatic moments. It's because you keep showing up and bringing your whole self to the relationship and you keep dying little deaths and you have to die those deaths. You have to. You need to let go of uh, your sexual autonomy and your financial autonomy and, and you, you, you need to uh, learn to hold your tongue and you need to learn the love language of the other and, and you need to be faithful in sickness and you need to save money instead of spending on what you want and little sacrifices and having hard conversations, giving them, receiving them, all that. And so like water, only more powerful than water, your selfish ego is worn down and what remains is a diamond, man. And if that's true of marriage, all the more true your relationship with Christ. There were big moments for me in my relationship with Christ. One, 1976, when I said, yeah, I, I want to know God. That's the main goal of life. Yes, a big moment. But if there's a measure of Christ in me that is seen and visible, largely it's not because of big moments. It's because of a thousand cups of coffee with Jesus. And it's because of a thousand expressions of gratitude in a journal. And a thousand responses to conviction from the Holy Spirit regarding my own need for repentance, whether it's with my sexuality or my money or my marriage or my thoughts or my bitterness or my cynicism or my laziness, repentance over and over and over again. And so something dies so that something more beautiful can be born. That's what God intends for everyone. Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small things. Yeah, you don't need, you know, a giant altar and big tears, you need little yeses, millions of them, yeses to Jesus. And here's the last thing. She has boundaries that are beautiful. She has boundaries that are beautiful. 
There's two kind of stories here, one regarding her brothers, one regarding Solomon. I'll read this regarding her brothers, what they say, and I'll warn you it's weird, and then we'll unpack it. She says, uh, they say, they say regarding her, we have a little sister, she has no breasts, what will we do for our sister? On the day when she's spoken for, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver, but if she's a door, we'll barricade her with planks of cedar. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. Let, <laughs> let, let me explain this to you just for a minute here. So, that, so that, here's the backstory of this text. The, it was the brothers who arranged marriages for younger sisters. That's the way the culture was. And usually, predominantly, uh, an arranged marriage had nothing to do with love, had everything to do with economics and politics, right? So if, here's verse 8 and 9. If she's a wall, we'll barricade it. In other words, if she's not yet ready for marriage, then we won't let anyone even see her. But if she's a door... Uh, then we'll make sure nobody enters that door without our permission. That's, that's the text, right? And then look at her response. Well, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. And then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Really interesting. In other words, here's what she's saying. I was a wall. And when I was a wall, I, I, I had breasts they were like towers, though. In other words, uh, guarded. By, guarded by who? The brothers? No. By me. I have my own boundaries. When I was unattached, I didn't need my brothers to protect me. I protected myself. And then, listen, when I met my beloved, hear this, I chose him. And the result, in spite of scorn, in spite of trouble, in spite of risk of social marginalization, in spite of the pain that comes with this relationship, in spite of all the difficulties of choosing him, what I gained in the process was peace. Wow. That of course, that applies to marriage and the need for both women and men to have strong sense of self, strong boundaries. All that's true, yes, and it applies to your relationship with Christ. Now, when you choose Christ, watch this, in spite of scorn, in spite of trouble, in spite of opening your wallet and giving, in spite of opening your, your, your calendar and investing time, in spite, in spite, in spite, what's the result? Peace. Why? Because this is the life for which you're created. You're created for love. <laughs> so, my, listen, I'm not going to let my brothers or Solomon or Amazon or Microsoft or Apple, or my 401k determine my destiny. No one's going to arrange who I love. I will choose, and I choose Christ. That's what she's saying. And then, not only that, she says, Solomon's not going to be able to buy me. Look at verse uh, 11. Solomon had a vineyard, Baal Haman, and he entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a 1,000 shekels of silver. Now, this whole thing is metaphor about Solomon's harem. How do we know that? Because Baal Herman, you know what that literally means? Husband of a multitude. So he had a vineyard named Husband of a Multitude. Well, how did all these women get there? Well, he conscripted them, but also they had to pay to enter. Thousand shekels. You want to be in? Here's Solomon. You want to be part of this? It's going to cost you. Thousand shekels. And then you get all, you know, you get to be part of the harem, and there's people taking care of you, and, you know, you, you, you know, you get, it's like the Playboy Mansion, you have a reputation, and if you're into that, then, you know, good for you, security, reputation, comfort, upward mobility, pleasure, that's it. You buy your way in. Well, here's her answer, verse 12. 
I have my own vineyard, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and so here, take a thousand shekels, fine. You can have my money, but you can't have my vineyard. It's mine. Wow. Strong women are being the way God meant them to be. Do you realize that? You're a strong woman. That's what God made you to be. She has a strong sense of self. She won't be bought. She'll give her love to the one she chooses to give her love to. And as such, she will have a peace and confidence that will never come to those who are living out from insecurity. <laughs> so I'm just going to say it here. Don't ever, be, don't ever apologize for being strong. For having a sense of self, for having a sense of calling, for having a good boundaries. Don't apologize for that. And if men, are if men are intimidated by that, too bad. Their loss. Don't lower your standards. And of course, this is a word for the church too. Because can I be honest? The church, like big evangelical church, easily bought. Easily bought. Bought by politicians. Because we want their power. Bought by the values of the world. Because the values of the world are so seductive. And different constituencies in the church... Uh, give in to the, 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 the seductive invitation of the world in different ways. Some give in to greed, some to sex, some to power, some to violence, some to neglect of the poor, some to apathy, some to living kind of tiny lives because they've allowed themselves to become nothing more than consumers when we're made to create, not consume. All of us in the room, call to create, create spaces of hospitality, create relationships that are life-giving, create communities that are light in the midst of the darkness all around us. Right here at 80th and Green Lake, where drug trafficking and prostitution is rampant to the, to the north, and young, vulnerable lives are waiting to be loved just to the south of us. Right here, light. We're called to create light. Not waste our lives away in front of the television or stuck on Facebook or stuck on Instagram. Here's Solomon. Come, be part of my vineyard. It'll cost you, but you'll have security the rest of your days. And here's her. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what I have to give you. You want a thousand shekels? Here, take a thousand shekels. But I'm not surrendering. My vineyard's my own. And so is yours. So how does it conclude verse 14? Hey, she, what does she say? She basically says in verse 14, come away with me. Let's get out of here. The world's gone mad, and the one thing that will sustain us is this love relationship. Remember that song by Nora Jones, Come Away With Me? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? All the ladies are shaking their head in the room. They know. <laughs> and some of us men have been forced to listen to it quite a bit as well, and so we also know. But there's a beautiful sentiment in the song of saying, look, uh, yeah, we live in a world that takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and offers trinkets and costume jewelry in exchange. And she now, she says to him, the church saying to Christ, look, all I want is you. That's all I want. You can have all of the world. This is an old hymn. You can, you can have all of the world. Just give me Jesus. And here's tragically our response sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. And my sexual ethics that are my own. <laughs> Jesus and my money. Jesus and my time. No. 
You can have it all. Just give me Jesus. That's the life for which you're created. Father, meet us now as we respond. As we come away with you, will you show us what we need to leave behind? That we might follow you fully and that true resurrection life might come out of letting go and leaving behind that which is enslaving us. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.